This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Last week, as a back-to-school special of the academic variety, we spoke with Lauren Oakes about the writing of her book, In Search of the Canary Tree, the book in common here in Chico, California. This week, we have a home and garden variety back-to-school special for all of those students who might be moving into dorms or apartments, for workers returning to offices, or even those of us who might be using this seasonal interface to relocate or redecorate. For wherever you might be headed and thinking about ways to make your space more like home. This week, we're speaking with Baylor Chapman. Baylor is the founder and principal of Lila B. Design, the motto of which is, we love designing with plants, teaching how to arrange them, and transforming spaces with them. Baylor is also the author of several books, the first of which was The Plant Recipe Book, and the most recent of which is Decorating with Plants, What to Choose, Ways to Style, and How to Make Them Thrive. Baylor joins us today from her urban home and houseplant oasis in San Francisco's Mission District. Welcome, Baylor. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much. I am so pleased to be here. I'm really honored. I'm a big fan of your program and your podcast, and it's really inspiring. So thank you. Well, I'm going to start right off with the full confession that I think my audience about two summers ago, were horrified to hear me in conversation with a houseplant fan and enthusiast and to hear me admit that I struggle with houseplants, Baylor. And I have a wonderful niece in Milwaukee who has a lovely little uh, renovated historic apartment in an old building, and she loves houseplants, her, her house babies and her green babies. And I have two daughters headed to college, one for her third year and another for her first year. And it is very apparent to me that Many people, whether they're young people or older people, even in, say, nursing homes or assisted living or whatever it may be, they need to get their green differently than I get my green. And I really want to explore this with you. Let's start off a little bit by having you describe what is Lila B. Design and what, what is your plant and green practice in this world, Baylor? Uh, I think it's ever changing, but Lila B. Design is a small uh, green certified uh, floral and plant design business in San Francisco. I have kind of moved from florals to more plants and done, I try to do something that's similar with plants to evoke the same feelings as flowers do. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that for, I guess, 12 years now. And it's transitioned to more, um, I'm doing more education and lecturing and really enjoying writing books and, and talking about kind of the power of plants and how they make us better people. Yeah. Take us back a little bit. Where were you born and raised? Who were the, the people and plants and places that grew you into a person that would be called into floral design and then its evolution into plant advocacy and education? It is probably the transition that I've gone from a suburb of Chicago, typical suburban lifestyle, mm -hmm. 
uh, with a little backyard and a little bit of nature. And when I was about seven, my father and mother decided to move to the country. We moved three hours outside of Chicago. We had a mile long driveway and we were 10 miles between two towns. Mm -hmm. Uh, Needless to say, you couldn't really see any other houses from our house. And we had a really nice view of rolling hills. Unlike what people think of Illinois, um, the Northwest corner has a lot of, um, a lot of hills and beauty and green. And I think it was really that transition from more of a, um, a suburban city life to the country that has really dictated the way I've lived my life. And, um, it was my father became a farmer and we looked out on cornfields that were transitioned and crops were rotated to alfalfa. And my mother had huge vegetable gardens and sunflowers where we grew a lot of the food we ate. And it was really idyllic upbringing. Although when I was a kid, I thought I miss the, I miss suburban life. But, um, (laughs) but now looking back, I feel like I am really drawn to the country. Um, and it even speaks to where I am now. I've spent a number of years, I think 20 years in San Francisco and my deck, I have a 500 square foot deck. It's almost as big as my apartment, which is 850 square feet and filled with plants usually. But then if I look above, I see bobbed wire. I'm in a very industrial urban part of the city. Um, my home is in a, uh, repurposed cardboard box factory. So deep in the urban jungle, where I think I was really craving um, a connection to the outdoors again, and and kind of sought that in in how I live my life and how I spend my days. So were you always a houseplant person? Were they part of of your life, or did you, as you sort of made life in a city? come to recognize that you were missing green and started with cut flowers and then started with houseplants? Tell us about that journey. Ah, so what I did is when I was in San Francisco, I actually moved there from New Mexico Um, for a number of years. Just to backtrack a little bit, I've been interested in anthropology, the the social Mm -hmm. sciences. It's what I studied in, in college. It's what I did in Boston when I lived in a city. I worked for an anthropology division of a company called Earthwatch, where we did research expeditions. Then I moved to New Mexico and I worked for an anthropology institute where we worked with various uh, cultural scientists from around the world. And then I lived in the country. So I think when I moved to the city, to San Francisco, I thought I was going to get a corporate job of some sort and work in an office. And I was in a cubicle and I couldn't do it. It I was very uncomfortable. Um, where was my window? Where where was my mm-hmm. view? <laughs> you know, all those kinds of things, and um, kind of stuck around in the in the normal corporate environment for a year or maybe even two. And uh, it was during that dot com phase, and my company went under. Unfortunately for them, but fortunately for me, because then I thought now I have the permission to pursue a career and a life that I really want. And I went back to school for landscape architecture at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley had an extension program in landscape architecture. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. I thought I'm going to 
build outdoor spaces. But then when I was more in tune with what I really loved, I realized, wait a second, it's the plants I love more than the structures. So I changed and and finished a degree in garden design there um, while working on an estate out in the peninsula, um, an organic estate with a whole team of gardeners Mm. and thought I was going to be a garden designer and a gardener, which I was for a number of years. Um, But soon I realized wait a second, I like instant gratification here. And I love to grow things. Don't get me wrong. I'm growing things now in a garden and I love it. But I think I like to make people feel good right away. And you can transform a space easily inside by bringing in potted plants. Um, It's something that it just happens. And it and the benefits, I think, are as strong or can be as strong for those apartment dwellers and those college students and the nursing home occupants that you were talking about earlier. It's a way of bringing a little bit of nature inside. So I think I found my niche and that's what I really love. And so how long, when did you found Lila B Design and at what point, how many years has it been since it's been much more focused on interior scapes with living green plants. Let's see. I founded it in 2007. Mm -hmm. I was still, I believe, working on the estate and I had transferred. There's a big team there. It was a really amazing, organic, beautiful garden space. And I had moved from their gardens to their interior space. And that's when I kind of thought, oh, I love this. I love transforming spaces. But when I started my own business, I kind of lost sight of it a little bit. And that's okay because everybody does. And I did um, lots of weddings and corporate events for a while. And I said, wait a second, let's get back in tune with what I love. My book came out in 2014. So it must have been 2012 because I think I had been doing it a while, 2012, 2013, when I said, I'm going back to plants. I'm going back to what I truly love. Yeah. And what I love about stories like this, Baylor, is how they illustrate for all of us. There isn't, for most of us, there is not one answer that we know, you know, from the time we're seven, that you have to take this exploration of, try this. It's not quite like that. I think I'll go a little bit this way. And then it's not exactly that. And you keep forming who you're going to be. And when you find one of your niches, because it sounds like you are like me and that there have been a couple niches that are great fits at a time, and then you kind of grow and you, you know, to use a metaphor, you need repotting and you go to your next niche and it feels great. And I love how the the early work in social sciences and anthropology and then the understanding of space and putting it together with the landscape architecture and the garden design, they all come to play in what you do now. I am—I wish I knew that when I was in my 20s, but now <laughs> in my 50s, I'm so glad to know it. And I'm glad to connect that thread because we're just kind of going along in our 20s, wondering what's next. And, um, and I'm really happy and I'm so happy and I'm hoping to tie in this anthropology, the kind of cultural sciences part even more in, into what I'm reading, learning and talking about mm-hmm. because it really fascinates me about the power of plants and what they can do for us as human beings and as happier, healthier human beings as well. Yeah. And the research coming out on this all the time now, I mean, I think we all know it 
instinctively, even if we can't articulate it. And speaking of wishing you had known something in your 20s, when I graduated from high school, I started at Barnard College in New York City, having been born and raised in Colorado in big open spaces and ponderosa pines. And I end up in New York City thinking that's going to be a great adventure. And I was so sad and just heartsick by the end of the first semester of my second year that I bailed and went home. I had no idea how homesick I was for green and for living organisms that I helped cared for and who cared for me back. And I was doing an interview with Eliza Blank of The Sill, who's one of your resources in oh, the back of the yes. book, and for a, a another project in a, a book. And she was able to articulate just what you were able to identify is I miss green. And I I didn't know it at the time. And I think that just this conversation um, for people listening, if you can identify that this is what you miss and start adding it back in, you'll be so much happier no matter where you live. And it doesn't take a jungle is what I'm learning too. It can be one little like succulent on your desk or it could be a little moss, something to represent what you're missing. It's a little signifier. Oh, it's green. Yeah. So let's start first of all with your first book, The Plant Recipe Book, uh, because I think it was such a foundational stepping stone leading to your own growth and development that led into decorating with plants. When when did you start writing that? Why did you write that? Explain to listeners the arc of that book before we dive into decorating with plants. Sure. I felt pretty blessed because it was at a time in my business where I decided, okay, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? And I said to myself, all right, let's do fewer weddings. Let's do more plants and plant arrangements because that's what I love. And I got a call from uh, Kitty Cowles, who is now my literary agent, saying, hey, I have an idea, and I heard you might be the person to speak with. It was just amazing. It's amazing to me how in the world, if you set out kind of an intention or an idea or Mm. a a goal of some sort, um, how sometimes things come to you. And I feel blessed. She said, here we have um, this book called The Flower Recipe Book. We're thinking of doing something similar with plants. Do you have ideas around that? (laughs) And of course, I was thrilled, (laughs) thrilled. And it was a really fun project because it's what I love to do is, is take plants and not rival flower arrangements, but try to evoke that same sense of beauty. Um, and people can bring them into their homes for uh, special occasions, for a centerpiece. Um, it can be temporary. It can be long-term. I think with uh, plant arrangements, I encourage people, if you enjoy it for two weeks inside your house, no problem. Just take it uh, take it apart and replant it outside if that's where it might thrive a little bit better. But kind of taking that concept of repurposing, reusing, regenerating, um, and doing that with plants. So then you went a couple years, and how and why did the idea for decorating with plants come along? And tell us about that process of the initial seed of an idea and then how it evolved and grew into what it is now. 
I think it was taking the idea of the plant recipe book, which is just close-up photos of plants and plant arrangements and kind of thinking, all right, so they don't live solely on that page with that green background or that gray background. They're actually in a space. And how do those plants relate to each other? How do they relate to the vase? And that might have been in the plant recipe book where it kind of takes it a step further. All right. How do the plants relate to the room? How do they relate to the couch? And how do they relate to us as human beings and as people? Baylor Chapman is the founder of Lila B. Design, working to help us all, but perhaps most specifically, urban small-spaced dwellers, get more green into our lives. She writes... Every day, I'm inspired by the raw beauty of nature and am constantly thinking about ways to bring it into my home and yours. I believe that nature is handsome more than pretty, and I'm always searching for an unexpected definition of beautiful. Stay with us for more conversation with Baylor right after the break. Hey, so... I may not have a great or profoundly enthusiastic track record with houseplants, but I am a mild and new convert to the idea. Since our last houseplant episode a few years back, I've become quite fond of my handful of plants, and I do engage with them. The African violet, the five or so begonias, the ivy, the several pelargoniums, which I do walk by and pinch daily. The 1989 NASA study conducted by Bill Wolverton and to which Baylor referred is pretty conclusive in its evidence for plants helping to detoxify the air. Most of the questions about the study have to do with the fact that the space in which the study was conducted, as you might imagine, was an airtight and sealed space. And there's been little conclusive evidence or studies to correlate the effectiveness of plants on cleaning the air in a normal house, for instance, in which the air is being exchanged on a regular basis with the outside. So my takeaway lesson from this is this. Get more plants. Care for them without the use of any more toxins. And get outside daily. Fresh air helps everything. So do plants. Make sure to get your daily dose of both. Now, back to our conversation with Baylor Chapman, encouraging us to incorporate more green into our interior spaces. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. In this week's second back-to-school special episode, we're focusing on green in our interior spaces. Spaces like dorms, apartments, offices, even cubicles. When we left our conversation with Baylor Chapman, author of Decorating with Plants, we were discussing the many ways that green living plants can improve our interior scapes. We're back now, and Baylor is describing different ways to think about plants and how to face the dreaded fear of being a plant killer. 
um, anyone can play with plants, um, that you don't have to be a plant aficionado to do it or a plant expert. And also explain to people or demonstrate to people the benefits of plants. And, and that's kind of sprinkled throughout the book. They're more hinting. I don't want to hammer people over the head with it. Kind of use beautiful photographs to help people feel comfortable and feel good around plants. And remove the fear and the trepidation and, and the fear of being a plant killer. All right, just try one, you know. Right. And it is sad when you kill a plant, Baylor. It I've is. done it. I and know. um and for some reason having them inside and die feels so much more like failure on my part than having them be outside and die. And even looking through your book and reading each of the sections, so reading the primary sections, but then, you know, looking through and lighting on the ones that really catch my, the individual plants in the kind of plant glossary part of the book that catch my attention. I already know that I need to go home and repot two of my houseplants. And only since I had that previous interview have I even owned houseplants, Baylor. So I am I am a newbie like anybody else listening out there to this part of it. So the beginning section of the book, the introduction, lays out some just really nice foundational elements to why and what and how you even get started with what you are hoping to introduce people to in the book. Well, can we walk through that as the introduction to the structure of the book? Yeah. So the introduction, that was one of the, the most fun parts of the book to write because I thought, well, why am I writing this? Why do I think it's useful? And I think that um, plants are, we know they're beautiful, we bring them into the home perhaps because we think they're so beautiful, but they're beautiful on all sorts of senses that we might think beyond our eyes. There's the fragrance, there's the touch, and of course, there's the taste. Um, I also think that they, the beauty of them or the personality of them, should mm-hmm. I say, mm-hmm. or the combination of them kind of connect us to nature. They define our style and they kind of... Um, if we don't have that view of the mountains or we don't have the view of, of a green hillside or just a small garden and we need to create that, this is a bridge to connect us to our – it's an innate need of ours to connect to nature. And it kind of encourages us to settle down, settle in, and kind of calm even on a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I also think that um, – in the introduction, I talk a little bit about health, you know, why to bring plants in. And we, and a lot of people have talked about the NASA study, but it's even, I think, beyond that. Um, they do clean our air, if not only their leaves, but their soil does. And I think they also mitigate sound. So if you have some noisy neighbors, and they're not going to soundproof your walls, but they might be similar to, say, putting in a carpet. And it's their leaves and their soil that either absorb or diffract or reflect sound, which I think is fascinating. I do, too. And it was one of the things that I made big check marks next to in the introduction because I thought, that is that is true, and I hadn't thought about it. And I know there's research out there on it that I want to look into more um, because that can be not only 
you know, I think the smell is really important. The aromatherapy is important to us, the cleaning of the air. But when you're in an urban environment or in a small space like a dorm or, you know, a big apartment building, the sounds of other people living all around you can be, they set a different tone than you might want to set. And this helps you control your space in a really low impact and low maintenance kind of way. It's a really easy element to add. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot about that and a lot about um, when you were talking about um, bringing him into college dorms or bringing him to a new apartment or even in um, for elderly or if you live alone, it could be all those benefits of the beauty and the mitigating sound and the air, but then there's also the relationship you have with the plant. <laughs> it it listens to you. It does. Or you listen to it and you're watching and you're getting to know it. Oh, the leaves are drooping a little bit. What does that mean? So that also provides a really gratifying element to the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um observing them and them observing you and you're kind of communicating and talking to each other a little bit, a little bit. But what's interesting, right, there was a a wonderful story and I think it was on NPR last week about our incredibly precise ability to read micro expressions in other people. And then I think about the And I think everybody, anybody who's been on Instagram or Facebook in the last year will have seen one of these time-lapse videos of all of the movements a plant makes throughout the course of a day with the light coming up and then the light going down and water coming in and, and them evaporating it. And they have an incredible range of motion. And I think about those expressions that our plant is sending out into the universe that we then pick up as we walk by. I walk out of my office. I see my little trailing ivy thing and I I pick up clues from it and communication from it and I know if it needs water or, you know, I need to tuck it up and give it a little more space to roam. And that is communication and relationship. Exactly, exactly. And do you think it's something that we need just to be in tune with or practice just as if we have human relationships and we start Mm -hmm. to understand other people? It's the same. You're around a plant a little bit more and you start to open your eyes or take a deep breath and really kind of pay more attention instead of just walking by um, or reading your partner. It just takes a little bit of practice. And even one experience of walking by and seeing it wilted that you have forgotten to give in it water makes you feel a, a very deep human like, oh, my gosh, I, I, oh my, I'm so sorry. And you <laughs> run and get water and you water the plant and it perks up and you think, oh, thank goodness. Because there is this accountability, this, you know, as Robin Kimmerer has taught all of us, this wonderful reciprocity between us and the plants we love, whether they're indoors or outdoors. But indoors, like a pet, they have much more reliance on you. Definitely. Definitely. You mentioned earlier the NASA study. Uh, Can you distill for listeners what that study entailed? Sure. So I'm going to overgeneralize. But basically, NASA did this study with plants to try to figure out, um, do they clean our air? Mm. Do they soak up toxins in the world? And they would put a plant in a room and uh, emit certain toxicities and see what happened to the levels of them. And it turns out that 
certain plants, there are, I can't remember, 10 or so that are on their list, maybe even more, mm -hmm. that they claim certain clean more formaldehyde, others clean other things. So they have proven in this study, and some people are disputing it a little bit, which I think is interesting, and I'd love to learn more about it. But I think there's no denying that plants actually take in toxins, take in carbon dioxide and spit out oxygen. And, and there's no denying that. It's just a matter of measuring it. And I know when I did the interview with Maria Faella of Bloom and Grow, we I had a link to that NASA study in the write-up, and I will do the same now. And I would love to follow up on anybody that's disputing it at this point, because as I remember, they have very specific plants that are exceptional at this capability and others that are, are pretty good. But we know in, in the outside world, they capture dust, they take in, of course, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and clean it and breathe out oxygen to us. So I think it's a really interesting thing to, to pay attention to um, for just that one health benefit. And they, they say even just one plant in a room makes a difference. Yes. And I, what I also find fascinating is it's not only the leaves, but it's also the roots mm -hmm. that help. And I think that's fascinating because we only, I think about the plant and the plant above the soil, but it's really stuff below the soil that's doing some good stuff for us too. Yeah. Yeah. The other aspect that I, I loved, and you touched on it a little bit in going through the elements in the introduction, but the setting a tone for a room and the creating division of space in a room, I think can be so important in a small space. And, you know, there are rooms in our, in our houses, whether they're apartments or bigger, that we want to be quiet in, we want to study in, we want to read in. There are other rooms that we want to eat dinner in and have gatherings with people that are more festive and noisy and, and engaged. And plants can help establish that tone and feel in a room. And the division of space I found really interesting, and I hadn't really thought about it before, but I, I think it naturally does happen when people have plants in spaces. Definitely. And when I was in uh, at Berkeley Extension in Garden Design, I remember we talked a lot about uh, focal points in the garden. And I think about that a lot in houses or in homes. And if you put your plants in certain places, not only will they, you know, perhaps they're going to help you separate one space from, an, uh, from another, but they're also going to help you lead to one space from another. Mm -hmm. If you put it in your, in your eye, or what is that? Or if you're gently sneaking out from behind the corner, kind of oh, I'm going to go around and I'm going to see what that is. So they're really, um, I think they're great to play with that way. And I also think that scent and smell helps delineate a space. If you walk in your entry, all of a sudden you have this smell and it also helps you relax you in your home. And then you walk into the kitchen and you you hear, you smell different smells. They're neat. They can be used different ways. And I think about for instance, my my daughters in uh, dorms and my niece in a small urban apartment. And you sometimes have to live with other people. And you have to sometimes live with other people you didn't necessarily choose out of great devotion or love. And so if you're trying to sit at a desk and study and your roommate or housemate has another need that's going on, to have a plant that kind of blocks 
light or, or motion uh, while you're trying to focus at your desk can make all the difference to you being able to just stay in your own headspace and physical space in a meaningful way. Definitely. And it doesn't have to be a huge palm or a huge tree. You could take a little plant, hang it on a hook, hang it from the ceiling Mm -hmm. or from the wall and have it draped down. And it can just be a representation of a delineation of space. It doesn't have to be a full blockage of, you know, a big armor between the two of you, but just a little something, a little hint. So say you're you're me and you're trying to get started with houseplants or you're my daughters and niece and or, uh, you know, my elders going into smaller spaces in their life and they want to get started. Give us some of the tips that you provide in the book that help us evaluate what kinds of plants, what what to do. What do we, where do we start, Baylor? I would think about, okay, what's your What's your comfort level and what's your commitment level? Do you want something that you just set and you don't have to think about just to start, you know, Mm -hmm. something that's a little bit less fussy? So I would think about that. I would also think about your environment. What's your room like? Is it is it really dark? Do you have lots of windows? Do you have direct light? Um, what's your space like? Is it is it vast and and airy, or is it very contained and and it has to be tidy and small? So those are just some things to think about when you're out picking your plant. Mm-hmm. I think the light one is essential, and the humidity one is essential because in these small controlled environments, it is really hard to alter the humidity, and it will often vary wildly uh, throughout, you know, an apartment. Like in the winter, the heat will blast or in the summer, the air conditioning is so darn cold if you don't have control over it that you, you know, you, the, all of these things come to play on these poor plants. Definitely. Especially if you're just going to get one plant, say you're going to get 10 and you put them in a grouping, they're going to help each other um, with their own humidity levels because together they're going to create more humidity. But if you're just doing a single, definitely you have to think about that. And the, and the conditions of heating and air conditioning are pretty tough, pretty tough to deal with. You go through this in a a great section called Getting Started. You know, what room do you want to plant in? What's your style? How big a space do you have? Uh, What's your budget? Like, because... That's a big one. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, there there are some plants that are super um, expensive and others that are less expensive. And it all has to do with um, the growers. And, uh, and there was, you know, the Chinese money plant or the Pilea peppermoides. You know, that for a while was so expensive because no one had it and it was ultra popular. So now it seems I've even seen it at um, at a Trader Joe's and, and a less expensive. So now that the, the quantity has caught up with the desire that the price point has gone down. So budget plays a role. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. This week, we're talking about how to green up our interior spaces with living plants. And we're joined by Baylor Chapman, designer and houseplant arranger extraordinaire. We'll be right back with more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So thinking out loud this week, my ears really perked up when Baylor mentioned she had studied anthropology 
as well as landscape design and garden design. Think how much information is contained in the history of our relationship to plants and the land, how we relate to our spaces in general, inside and out. There's a lot of information there. It completely reminded me of our previous episode with Courtney Allen about how we read a landscape and what we can find in that reading. What was it the English writer, poet, and gardener Alfred Austin said? Show me your garden and I shall tell you what you are. It makes me walk around my garden now in late September and laugh a little. I am clearly very late summer and waiting for cooler days and longer nights and some rain. But my garden also tells me that I'm a gardener and a loving one at that. And does it really get much better than that? What about you? When you are out in your garden, when you look at your plants and your space in this way, what does it tell you about who you are? Now, back to our conversation with Baylor Chapman. I do love her plant arrangements, people. With her direction, maybe there's even hope for me regarding indoor plants. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to finish our conversation with Baylor Chapman of Lila B. Design in San Francisco. She's also the author of Decorating with Plants. As students return to dorms and apartments, workers return to offices, we can all use a little more green to help our interior spaces feel more like home. In this next section, Baylor walks us through some specific plants for specific conditions, how to source our plants, and what to look for in a healthy plant. Because there are so many places like Trader Joe's or grocery stores that do sell plants. And I'm not always sure about where that plant has been. How long has it been in that fluorescent um, space? And who has been caring for it once it left the grower? I don't know. But if you do go to a nursery, a plant nursery, definitely you're going to get some educated help, some knowledge. Um, it's probably from a grower that the nursery person knows. If you talk to this person and you say, hey, I have a low light room and I don't have much space. I need something more upright. They're going to be able to lead you to the right plant instead of just going willy nilly. Oh, hey, I like that. Let's just buy it um, without the education. Yeah. It will make the experience have at least the potential for much greater success if you educate yourself just a little bit and you get it from someplace that loves and values plants so that it has been well cared for and it comes from a good home and will then hopefully stand a much better chance of thriving in your care. Um, you give some great tips on what to look for. And one of them is the idea of, has it dried out? What do its leaves look like? Are they healthy? Are they green if they're supposed to be green? And whether or not it's root bound. Will you describe that especially for listeners? Root bound. That is something I love. I love to give hands-on classes. And often when I do, I am unpotting a plant in front of an audience of, you know, could be five people, could be 40, who knows. And it's always the test because I pull the plant out of the pot gently. And what you want, usually, you want to see the roots. You want the 
plant soil to come out of the pot nicely and hold the shape of the pot. If it comes out, if it's really hard to come out, it you pull it out and it's all white, meaning that it's root bound, that it's just packed, packed, packed full of roots. That means it might have been in that pot just a way too long. And the, the roots have nowhere to go. So when I... I kind of say, set them free, loosen them up. You kind of do that with your fingers. Some plants might need a knife depending on what their root structure is like. You just want to set them free so they can explore and escape a little bit more and pot them up in a plant, in a pot size, just a wee bit bigger. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about materials. And I love this discussion because you you get into some of the materials that you're going to find in potting soils. And you, you talk about the sustainability and what we as an industry are, are learning more and more about some of these elements that were staples for a long time, and now we are making some different choices. Will you walk through some of the, your, your potting soil and pot discussion? Yeah, and you might be referring to the peat moss yeah. mix, which has been a standard for so long. Mm-hmm. And now we're coming to realize, or it's the word is getting out, that peat is a not a sustainable product. And what are other options for us? And what else can we use for these? And this we have to do, uh, rely on education, doing some reading, and then maybe it's a little bit of pressure on the, the people who produce these products or do the mining for them. It's not just the peat, although the peat is the sort of flashpoint, you know, it has been for a couple of years now, takes many, many, many thousands of years to create peat. And so for us to be extracting it from the earth and using it in our houseplants, it doesn't seem the best use of that material or degrading of the landscapes from which peat is taken. Some of the alternatives are the the core, the... Um, which I think is derived from coconut and palm as well. Is that true? I think I think so. I know about the coconut. Coconut being a variety of palm. But it's it comes down to being familiar with like looking at your ingredients, just like you would look at the ingredients on something that you eat and are going to take home. What? Where is the soil from? Where is the perlite from? Where has the bark been harvested from if you are in a, for instance, an orchid in a, a bark medium? Uh, because you, you want to make sure that you aren't being complicit in, you know, in trying to get nature in your own space. You do not want to be complicit in activities that are degrading nature elsewhere. Exactly. I'm wondering, um, I know where I am in California, we compost Mm -hmm. and in San Francisco. And I, I think a lot about the plants and putting the plants back in compost. And then I'm trying to make my own soil or rely on the city to collect all my, my ingredients and make this good nutrient um, stuff. But I don't know if that's around the U.S. I was just in New Mexico and downtown Santa Fe, and they don't compost there, um, at least in downtown. And I'm wondering, I took a lot of green waste to the dump or to the transfer mm-hmm. station. But the day-to-day regularity of, of that doesn't really happen, kind of taking that stuff and putting it back into the earth cre- to create better things. Yeah. And I think that varies widely. I think it's uh, available in a lot of places and there are still some places that are holdouts in the, um, let's say, 
the Tao of compost in our world. But hopefully we get we continue to get that word out as well. Because, you know, two things to follow up on the compost element is that if a plant does die, you can put it in your compost so that it is regenerative in 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 the life that it led for the time that you had it. But if the materials that came with that plant are not ones you would want in your compost, then think about that before you buy it. Because if you're not willing to put it in your compost, you probably don't want it in your home to start with. That's a good point. And then I was also thinking about the peat moss that takes, you know, if it's, it takes so long to produce it, and then I enjoyed this plant for a month, and then I put it in my compost. Oh, darn, maybe, maybe that's, it's, it's okay to put it in there, but maybe it would have been better out where it originally was. Mm-hmm, exactly. So. And that's that's awareness and um, hopefully like bringing people along to reading carefully and, and thinking um, as broadly as we can. So you, you, you do a great section of, of how to pot your plant, which I think is critically important if you've never done this before yourself. And for those of us who then go home and say, I need to repot you like me, and so I'm going to be spending some time repotting this weekend, Baylor. Um, oh, good. And then we have a couple of pages of style, like how you pot them, how you dress the pot so that it looks a certain way. And I love this, and I think readers, uh, especially ones that are relying on houseplants to to do all of these wonderful things for them and with them, um, will really appreciate the the style pages in, in the book and, and will find something that might resonate with them. And then we get into the glossary of plants. And I, I want to go into these because some of them are quite common and some of them are not and might be of interest to people. So what would you think about giving us a couple suggestions from you for high light areas, low light areas, and some of the other extremes that you talk about, whether it's uh, – you, you do talk quite a bit about humidity as well. And if there's – you know, there's high light and then there's direct light. And those are two very different situations. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. I think my favorite low light, and I'm I'm probably going to pick one of your oddballs, but that's the Marimo ball. Yeah. Just because I think – and and my mother used to look at this and say, what's the purpose? But I think it's fantastic. And basically, if no, if somebody doesn't know what it is, it is a small little, it looks like a moss ball and it floats in water. It doesn't actually float. It rests on the bottom. And I love it because it's super easy. It's something you can do in very, very low light and you don't have to wa- worry about watering it at all. Yeah. And it's, one of the ones that I was reading through the book and I went, what in the world? But then I, I looked at it and I thought about a desk in a cubicle. I thought about, you know, the the top shelf in a dormitory room and this little – and it's – it's not even technically a plant. It is a an algae that creates this little ball. And it, it reminds me a little bit of sort of, you know, Japanese fat graphic anime movies. Um, and so it has a definite personality in this little fuzzy green ball that sits in the, the bottom of a bowl of water. And do they grow, Baylor? Do they get bigger and change? I know they change shape because sometimes you, you talk about if they get flat and you don't want them flat to swirl and to roll them into a ball in your palm and put them back in. 
they grow slowly, very, very slowly. And yes, I love the swirling or taking it out and putting it in your hand because it can also be kind of a, a nervous habit. Uh, twitch or a boredom if you want to take a little break at your desk. But slowly, and mine, I've noticed insignificant growth. So I should know how long they grow, how long it takes to get big, but um, they vary from like the end of an eraser to maybe a golf ball size or bigger. Yeah. And the story of their origins, which are in lakes in Japan, and they form these balls just due to the lapping of the water against the shore and the kind of gravelly, rocky bottom rolling this algae back and forth with the sway of the water. And I, I kind of loved that that narrative too. It's beautiful. Yeah, really beautiful and easy. Yeah. Okay, so move us along in terms of low light. Give us another example that might be a little more dynamic than the Marimo ball. I think I love the metallic palm and I love it because a lot of people might know about the cast iron plant Mm -hmm. and I think their difference is their leaf structure. They're both really easy to take care of. They can take low light, but the metallic palm might be a little harder to find perhaps, but it's got this beautiful fishtail-like structure to its leaves and it's got um, a slight shimmer of, of silver to it. And when it blooms, it's amazing. It's orange and these, oh, it's just so cool. But it's a really neat plant and very easy. And takes low light. And can take low light, yes. So move us into the light. What would you recommend in both bright, indirect light situations, and then we'll move to direct light? You know, I think you could probably put a pelargonium in both bright and indirect. Mm-hmm. I think it can handle that a little bit of that. And what I love about pelargoniums is that a lot of people think about them as, at least I grew up with them, outside. And I think that the leaf is not only gorgeous in its texture, there's such a variety in them, but there's also this beautiful fragrance that comes from many pelargoniums. A lot of people interchangeably use geranium with a pelargonium, but here I'm specifically talking about kind of the fragrant foliage leafed, and they can smell like nutmeg or roses. Mm-hmm. And for me, I love the leaf structure and the leaf much more than the flowers usually, which are often kind of a fluorescent almost, pink or orange. And sometimes um, like the nutmeg, I think has a little bit of a white flower mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of inconspicuous pretty fleeting. But I I think the flowers are quite sweet, but that isn't why you grow them. You grow them for those fantastic leaves. And I know when I walk by mine, and so mine are mostly outside, but some are in pots, so they are, I would still consider them a houseplant. They're just outside. I will, you know, I will be walking by and I will take a leaf and I will pinch it in my fingers and I will smell it. I will feel like a much better person. It's so true. I'm only laughing because it's what I do. And I feel badly if I'm outside and walking by someone's garden. I always feel like I have to touch it and squeeze a leaf. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the diversity is is incredible. And they're seriously easy to propagate so that you have more green babies rather quickly. True, true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. True, you just true. clip yeah. them off at one of the nodes, poke that little cutting into some more damp potting soil or dirt, and it will root its little heart out and be another plant that you can then give to somebody or move into another space. Um, 
So that is direct light and uh, and bright light. Give us another bright light or direct sun. Um, it, wait, what do you do with direct sun, especially in a window? Yeah, it can be tricky with direct sun because plants can sunburn. It's the craziest thing, I guess. Just you look at it, it literally has a sunburn. And some plants can take direct light, but not if you take them from a shaded area and then you move them directly into the sunlight. Some need to ease into it, just like we might need to ease into into the beach. Um, But another really good plant, or I guess a group of plants, I would say succulents, they can take uh, direct sun and sometimes they change in the direct sun environment with less water. They might become more vibrant, more red. For example, like a uh, the common name it is a zebra plant or a mm-hmm. Haworthia, one of my favorite succulents with pointy leaves and little white dots. If you reduce the water and you put it in direct sun, it turns more red. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Baylor. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I, you're definitely an inspiration for me and I enjoy listening to all your guests. So thank you. Baylor Chapman is the founder and principal of Lila B. Design, the motto of which is, we love designing with plants, teaching how to arrange them, and transforming spaces with them. She is also the author of several books, including the Plant Recipe Book and, most recently, Decorating with Plants, What to Choose, Ways to Style, and How to Make Them Thrive. Join us again next week when we begin a two-episode series on plant-based memoirs, the first with Dean Kuypers, author of The Deer Camp, a memoir recounting how restoring a piece of land with his father and his brothers also restored their family bonds and abiding love. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. And hey, over at the cultivatingplace.com website, you will be fully engaged in Baylor's stylish and evocative photos of great ways to incorporate plants into your interiors for some beautiful and classic looks. They even make me want to be far more stylish with my interior green. I think you're going to love looking at them, but even more, I think you'll be inspired to try it yourself at home. That's all at cultivatingplace.com this week. And while you're there, make sure to check out this month's A View From Here newsletter. If you're not signed up to get it every month, you can sign right up right there. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.